Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Tuesday morning, the 23rd of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. EU ministers met to discuss the humanitarian crisis in the Gaza Strip yesterday. They were joined by Israel's Foreign Minister, Israel Katz, who called on Europe to support getting the hostages out and to support the Israeli offensive. Back Israel to dismantling the Hamas terror organization that took Israel, attacked Israel very brutally. And we have to uh, bring back our security. Our brave soldiers are fighting in the very hard conditions. Hard conditions for Israeli soldiers, brutal conditions for Palestinians who are like lambs to the slaughter with over 25,000 people killed at this stage by Israel. The humanitarian situation could not be worst, could not be worst. There is no words to explain how the situation is with uh, hundreds of thousands without uh, anything, without shelters, without food, without medicines and under the bombs. And, And every day there is a high toll of civilian people being killed. Many ministers have said that uh, there are too many. Well, the question is, how many is too many? Too many, what does it mean too many? Well, too many is 25,000 people. How long is it going to continue? Joseph Burrell, the EU foreign affairs chief, speaking to reporters yesterday, also saying that the time has now come to discuss a two-state solution. I think that we have to stop talking about the peace the peace process and start talking more concretely about the two-state solution process. Because peace, it could be many different pieces. What kind of a peace you're talking about? So let's talk about what we want to do. And we want to do is to build a two-state solution. So let's talk about it. The way of naming, it's important. So from now on, I will not talk about the peace process, but about the two-state solution process. So what might a two-state solution look like? Well, to Joseph Burrell, 
and I suppose anybody else, in simple terms, that would mean that there would be a strip of land for Palestinians, the Palestinian state, and another strip of land called Israel. But yesterday, Israel presented another possibility with two videos depicting how an artificial island could be constructed off the Gaza Strip where Palestinians could be moved to. This, as you might expect, was dismissed out of hand. Back at home, the Social Democrats will be adding to the pressure on the Irish government to support South Africa's case in the International Court of Justice against Israel, which stands charged of genocide. Let's speak to Gary Gannon, who is a Social Democrat TD and the party's spokesperson on foreign affairs and defence. Good morning to you, Gary Gannon. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Your motion is to be debated on Wednesday tomorrow, but it's already been buoyed up this morning, I think, with a statement from Trocra, which is saying it believes, like the Social Democrats and others, that the Irish government should be a co-signatory to this case against Israel. Yeah, absolutely. Um, South Africa took the case to the International Court of Justice a couple of weeks ago and laid out the number of ways in which they feel Israel is committing genocide against the state of Palestine, backed up by some very impressive Irish lawyers, it should be said. Um, the position of the Social Democrats and other political parties across the spectrum in Ireland has been that Ireland should become, if not a co-signatory, should live up to our own obligations under the prevention of genocide conventions, which we signed up to in 1978, which is not only about prosecuting those complicit in genocide or establishing, if they are, but preventing genocide. And that, for me, is why this is more urgent. We're in a scenario now where 25,000 people have been killed in Gaza at the moment, 10,000 of those children. We're seeing the target of the journalists, 125 journalists being targeted and effectively assassinated. Mm. And we're saying that that should not go without consequence and that Ireland should do live up to its responsibilities and hold the state of Israel to account. The astonished Emmy Hall Martin is saying that the time is not right for that. We should look at the South African case, consider its findings and over the course of an undefined period then make our own determination. When the court that gives an interim opinion that perhaps then would be the time for mm. Ireland to sign up with South Africa against Israel. Yeah, but that's that's completely anathemate to our own obligations signed up to that convention. We're required to prevent genocide. So we should take our own actions. In the first instance, we should acknowledge the validity of the South African case. I believe we should relay our communications to the Israeli state ourselves, highlighting our concerns of what we're witnessing in Gaza. But we also have obligations to take legal cases and build our own case against Israel. And that we've signed up to that in 1978, as of other hundreds of 178 other nations, I believe. But that's an obligation that we have. We shouldn't shy away from it, particularly at this point. Mm. Um, It's an ironic uh, convention to take against Israel, isn't it? In that uh, convention uh, was established in 1948 after the Holocaust. Yeah, the convention itself came out of World War II and the horrors that we witnessed, including, obviously, most importantly, the Holocaust, which is the most depraved man's humanity to man. Um, But precisely because that's happened in relatively recent history, that we shouldn't shy away from standing at the first available opportunity. Look, we have been advocating for sanctions against Israel simply that, simply to get them to stop. Mm. I mean, your listeners might remember in the earlier phases of this uh, conflict, the, the latter phase, in 
just after October 17th, October 7th, we were debating whether Israel had bombed the hospital in the force incursion. And we couldn't believe that anyone today could bomb the hospital where there were victims there. And all of a sudden, Israel denied that. They muddied the waters. But now they've bombed every hospital in Gaza. Mm. Um, they've bombed every university. No. They're targeting UN workers. Yeah. So, I mean, we've already had every mm. line crossed here. So where, where does it stop? Yeah, well, we're all aghast, uh, we're horrified, disgusted, uh, appalled, uh, and we all feel helpless. Uh, your uh, motion uh, will not uh, be uh, adopted. Uh, no doubt the government will put down a, a counter motion, uh, but it certainly won't support your motion as things stand. And under those circumstances, normally I would say to you, well, what's the point? But I, I think perhaps this time around, there is a, a point in that people will want this on the agenda and they will want to discussed in the National Parliament, if nothing else. Actually, more interestingly to them, Michael, and the listeners may not be aware, the government have actually done something today they very rarely do. They've added their own motion today. They've changed the schedule today to add their own motion in relation to Ireland's position in relation to the conflict that's happening in Gaza. The government only usually do that in relation to confidence motions, but they've changed the schedule today to bring their own position forward. They're going to talk about... We haven't seen the warden yet, but from, what I'm getting, from looking at some reporters... They're going to talk about um, call for a ceasefire and then reference the reasons why they can't join South Africa's case. But that's actually a complete misreading of the motion that we have tomorrow. We don't. We only fully appreciate they can't join South Africa's mm. case at the moment. Yeah. That's fine. Their motion calls for them to acknowledge the validity of South Africa's case and commit ourselves to joining at the earliest opportunity. That's explicit in the warden of our motion. So that's all we wanted the government to be able to do. If they, yeah. do, if they acknowledge that today, well, that's absolutely fantastic. And then Ireland will stand out among the Western nations in terms of holding Israel to account for what's happening in Gaza. OK, but it does kind of come back to the same point. Uh, I, I don't know if you understand uh, what I, I'm trying to say, which is that because we all feel so helpless, uh, out of desperation, uh, we're all too delighted to talk about it because it seems to be the only thing that we can do or to try and put pressure on through the government diplomatically, as the case may be. Uh, and I think it's also true to say that if South Africa was to win its case, not only would that take uh, a very long time, uh, but it, it uh, probably will have no bearing on the conflict itself. Uh, as we learned uh, from the Russian offensive in Ukraine, countries can decide to ignore what the International Court of Justice says. Countries can decide to define that, but then that also bases um, pressure on the signatories to those conventions to the International Court of Justice, most specifically in that instance, the United States. There's actually a court case going on this week in America, I believe, where several lawyers representing uh, the Palestinian people are taking a case against Joe Biden himself for, the, for not acting in accordance with the prevention of genocide that's mm. contained under those same statutes. So uh, nation states such as America who are funding the bombs that are going to Israel that have been dropped mm. on Gaza, which is half the size of Laud, um America is fundamentally failing in its own obligations. We have America's ear, don't we? Why aren't we shouting in it? Uh, I mean, uh, he's he's known around here as the man from Cooley uh, and uh, as one of our own, a, a local man, as many people would not only refer to him, but really feel a, an affiliation with him. Uh, but that tide has turned to some extent uh, with uh, some graffiti turning up in Carlingford uh, on murals uh, that were erected to celebrate uh, the election of uh, a president in America of Irish uh, descendancy. 
Absolutely, and I can't step away from the fact that it was reported there in the last week that 80% of the people experiencing most severe deprivation and hunger as a consequence of famine are contained within Gaza at the moment, and that's a direct consequence of Israel's um, incursions, massacre of the Gazan people. So the Irish people are very in tune to famine, they're very in tune to the hardship of a colonizer inflicting incredible cruelty on those who they are seeking to oppress. I mean, that's contained within the Irish psyche. So for Joe Biden to um, jump up and exclaim his Irish heritage, which at the same time torn away from what is effectively a a genocide happening in Gaza, that is also incorporating famine, incorporating targeting of whole families, people by their profession, as I've already mentioned, health Mm. workers, journalists. I mean, Joe Biden doesn't get to claim his Irish ancestry at the same time as being a cheerleader for genocide. The Americans can do more. They should do more. Okay, we'll leave it there. Uh, The debate uh, will take place today on the government motion and then the Social Democrat motion tomorrow. Gary Gannon, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today. Gary Gannon is the Social Democrat spokesperson on foreign affairs. If you'd like to make comment on the programme today, as always, we'd be delighted if you did and we'd love to hear from you. Our phone number is 041-983-2000. You can text or WhatsApp 086-1800-658. Email Michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM now Your broadband bill could go up by about 10 or 15 euro a month every month uh, as a surcharge if you like uh, that's according to the Business Post uh, which has been reporting on how the government is looking at different ways of replacing the TV licence fee and that uh, that 15 euro or 10 euro as uh, the case may be would be used to fund public service broadcasters. Let's speak to two members of the Media Committee, Sinn Féin's Melda Munster and Fianna Fáil, Senator Malcolm Byrne. Good morning to both of you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Melda Munster, maybe you'd start on that report over the weekend of 10 to 15 euro on broadband bills. Is there anything in that that would be of interest to you? No, um Firstly, I suppose I was surprised actually to hear that idea floated um, over the weekend, given that it was never, ever actually examined by the Future of Media Commission, uh, which had gone into this in in detail, you know, examining various alternative funding models for the licence fee. Um, So it was a surprise to to hear that. I'm not actually aware of any jurisdiction that has implemented a model like that. Mm. Um, but everybody has broadband. Everybody pays their broadband. And if the broadband was more expensive, would they not continue to pay it anyway? Or otherwise, they wouldn't have Wi-Fi? Well, you see, first of all, many people don't have access to high-speed, reliable broadband. You hear people even in our own county here in parts mm. that, you know, they're trying to work from home. They can't rely on the broadband. So asking people to pay 10 or 15. And actually, if you're to go with the 15, that actually works out 20 euro more than the TV licence as it stands, mm. but to ask them to pay for that when their their broadband isn't reliable. But to, uh, as well as that, to pay on top of all the other bills that people have that's skyrocketing in the cost of living. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's... And also the other thing was about pensioners and households on low income, how they'd be charged. Yeah. You know, mm. um, there's a whole load of issues, but it was never, ever considered by the Future of Media Commission who went into this in great, great detail. Mm, mm. 
Okay. Uh, and we'd like to hear more about that and indeed your own thoughts on how the TV licence could be replaced. Uh, Malcolm Byrne, though, first of all, uh, you might talk about this idea as reported on in the Business Post. Do you think there's any merit in it at all? Because even if your broadband is unreliable, you most likely have a television set and you may or may not have a TV licence. Would this be a way of getting people to pay? Uh, good morning, Michael. Good morning, Imelda. Good morning to your listeners. Uh, uh, no, I, I, I mean, as Imelda said, this isn't something that has been floated. I, I had heard the idea uh, being suggested by, by somebody one time, uh, a long time ago, and I, I, I thought it was a, a, a crazy idea, uh, and I still uh, don't think it will work. Um, certainly the TV licence model uh, is is an outdated model. Now, people still have to pay their TV licence until a new model uh, comes into play. Uh, but my view is that we should be shifting to a situation whereby um, public service broadcasting is funded from general taxation. So in the same way that we fund a lot of other public goods, whether it's sport or the arts mm-hmm. or higher education, out of general taxation, uh, that that we look at doing uh, doing it similarly for public service broadcasting. Like the BBC? Uh, yeah, but but I mean, public service broadcasting, you know, quality journalism, whether it's news, current affairs, documentaries, the arts, children's programs, sports, it costs money to produce. Mm. Uh, you know it in LMFM, you know, it costs money uh, to get quality broadcasting at, at a local level uh, onto the air. Uh, and we do need to ensure that it's funded. Um, the current mechanism is broken. Uh, one of the challenges is that there are now about 12% of households in the state that don't even have the traditional uh, TV set in, in the corner. People are tending to, to download and look at content on their laptop or even on their phones. Mm. Uh, and what's key, though, is that we have a way of funding that quality content. Okay. Um, and who uh, would and pay? Would it be uh, down to working people to pay in order for the Exchequer to have the funds uh, to give to public service broadcasters or would you favour the idea of uh, taxing social welfare payments so that everybody pays? Well, I I, I think if you look at how general taxation works at the moment is that, you know, we all pay taxes, uh, including, by the way, those who are on social welfare. When you're paying that on goods and so on, you're paying taxes in that way. So we tend to fund a lot of public goods public good things, things that we regard as important out of general taxation. Um, the licence fee income, you know, in a, in a normal year would bring in over 200 million. Most of that, almost all of that goes uh, to RTE. So certainly if we abolish the licence fee, uh, you know, that's going to be 200 million that will have to be funded out of out of general taxation. Um, it does need to be managed by, by what would be called an arm's length body so that it's not government interfering in how the money is allocated, but we've we've plenty of experience um, of that. Uh, but I certainly think this nettle has to be grasped. It's been it's been kicked down uh, the line for far too long. Um, and certainly, Melda and I, as members of the uh, you know the Oireachtas mm-hmm. Media Committee, uh, you know members of that committee, we've we've worked very hard to examine uh, this issue in detail and worked quite collegially. Uh, I, I think we're all in agreement that this question has to be addressed because it's important that we have for our democracy quality public service broadcasting in Ireland. Okay, uh, what's uh, your thoughts on that Melda Munster? Would you agree that we should scrap the TV licence and the government funds all public service broadcasters? 
Well, that's what Sinn Féin, we have expressed a preference for direct exchequer funding, Mike, um, and it's directly in line with the recommendation of the Future of Media Commission. Um, RTE, as you probably know, is a dual funding model, 50% of its income coming from public funding and the balance, 43, coming from advertising and the other commercial activity. But we had said that we'd have a preference for maintaining the dual funding model, but we'd abolish the, the TV licence and invest in exchequer funding. And so people wouldn't have to pay the TV licence anymore. Another thing would, that would come from that would be um, in order to ensure value for money, um, for the public, we'd bring RTE under the remit of the mm. controller and auditor general. Yeah. That would allow the accounts to be audited to the public accounts committee to scrutinise those mm. accounts. Wouldn't do much for, for wouldn't, wouldn't, and accountability. OK, wouldn't do much uh, would it, in terms of value for money, uh, because uh, I think it, it depends on what you're getting uh, in return for what you spend uh, that defines value for money uh, and I, I think that, that correct me if I'm wrong that the controller and auditor general would be looking at the money that was given to RTA and that it was spent in, in the way that they said it would spend it uh, but that doesn't necessarily look at value for money uh, and maybe I could give you a, a, a good example of, of what's in the back of my mind uh, looking at that and we take a look at two programmes that are on television that I think everybody will be familiar with listening to us this morning Primetime on RTA, flagship current affairs programme. The Tonight Show on Virgin Television, flagship current affairs programme. Twice a week, primetime airs. The Tonight Show airs four times a week. I'd be very surprised if I was wrong in saying that more money is spent on producing primetime than The Tonight Show. And personally, I would feel that The Tonight Show is a far more informative piece of public service broadcasting. And that is what I would be looking at if I was looking at value for money. If they can produce four shows for less than the price of two shows and they're better, well, there's a starting point, is it not? Yeah, that's true too. But that would that would also come under the remit of the Public Accounts Committee, Mike, in relation to to value for money, um, because that's what it's about. You know, accountability and value for money when it's the public purse. And whilst before, as we all know only too well, they never came come under any scrutiny at all. And dare in the cheek of anyone to even ask them what's their opinion, you know, that was the impression you got from them. Um, but th- that would change coming onto the remit of the CNAG and the Public Accounts Committee could question that. And then even that funding could be brought through Parliament every, through the Oireachtas every four years, overall funding to be agreed every four years. So that, all of that sort of thing and value for money would come under great scrutiny. But also um, that would all be, this is all depending on whether, you know, the, the restructuring and reform mm. plans are satisfactory, particularly in regard to the financial transparency and accountability. And we need to see all those. The devil is in the detail. We're expecting a couple of more of those reports next month. And the devil will be in the detail of those. But it would all depend on whether or not they have, you know, transformed or reformed um, dramatically so that they've confidence. I mean, look at the the licence fee, the drop down to 29% between July and October, that's a second the mm. public were with the carry-on. Yeah. So they still, and I've said it from get-go, they've a mountain to climb 
in relation to gaining trust in that. But if it was direct exchequer funding, there would be the thing of them being under the CNAG, their 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 accounts being audited every year, going before the, the public accounts committee, scrutinised, being questioned on absolutely every aspect. So there'd be, you know, that along with the reforms that they've mm. made, if they prove to us that they've put structures in place at every single level, that what happened, the disgraceful carry-on that what mm. happened, that we witnessed happening last year, can never happen again, that there's enough layers of accountability um, within the entire organisation. And at that stage then, you know, you go with this. Um, once you have those those safeguards ring-fenced, if you like. Okay, Malcolm Byrne, uh, would you agree that RTA has to prove that it has taken the steps necessary to become value for money because whether it's just perception or whether it's reality, I think a lot of people would argue RTA uh, lives in an exclusive bubble where huge salaries and lavish spending are order of the day, the type of spending or salaries that don't exist in the independent sector. Uh, I'd agree. Uh, And I think RTE had a very bad year last year and it does need uh, to rebuild trust. Um, I would say that, you know, there's still a lot of quality broadcasting coming out of RTE and that has to be respected. Uh, And those hardworking journalists and others who put that together, you know, they're not on the lavish salaries and they need to be respected. I'll use the example of the really powerful um, uh, documentary that was commissioned by RTE Jackie and Coco that was broadcast last night, uh, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners would have seen. Of course. You know, we, we, we mm-hmm. still need to get that kind of content produced and, and properly funded. That doesn't take away uh, from the need for RTE uh, to be accountable. Uh, I think it's also, though, critical that, that RTE and public service broadcasters uh, are independent of government so that, that, yes, they're held accountable for how the money is spent, but at the same way, government can't control you know, editorial policy and so on uh, uh, in that space. I I do favour, by the way, and I think in terms of, uh, you know, if we develop the Public Service Broadcasting Fund, um, we have the Sound and Vision Fund, which does allow for independent broadcasters like LMFM Mm -hmm. in limited circumstances to apply for funding. You'll know that the government has established a a local media fund, which is to help with local reporting uh, for newspapers and, and, uh, and, and local radio. So I, I do think that there is a need to broaden the definition of public service broadcasting so it will allow independent broadcasters uh, to apply. But it's critical that, that, you know, that all of that structure is independent of government, that government isn't able uh, to, to you know, unduly influence edit, editorial policy. One thing is critical, though, and I think Imelda and I are, are in, in complete agreement on this, the current model is broken. And if we are to see... Uh, you know, a good functioning, high quality content, uh, public service and broadcasting sector in Ireland, we do need to fund it and we need to make decisions quickly on how that can be done. Okay, um, that uh, will undoubtedly result in interference though, won't it? Uh, I mean, if the Exchequer is funding the broadcaster, it's going to look at certain aspects of uh, it, it's work and say, well, uh, we don't want two FM or we don't want the orchestra or uh, we don't want um, somebody uh, 
presenting a magazine programme or a music programme or whatever we want non-stop current affairs for money? Well, no. I mean, uh, and, and, and in a sense, almost government can kind of control it at present because government sets the level of the licence fee. Um, you know, you do need to have the necessary safeguards uh, in place to guarantee that independence. And that's why Commission Amman as you know, the independent agency, it, it already administers 7% of the licence fee through the Sound and Vision Fund. Um, you know, there are always going to be there are always going to be healthy tensions between, uh, you know, those of us in politics and in the media. And it is right for the media uh, in a fair and balanced way to hold politicians to account. Um, and there needs to be, you know, there needs to be a level of independence um, for uh, for for the media as well. Mm. So getting that, that balance right is, is critical. Yeah. But it, ultimately, it's all about the content. And to produce good, quality, fair, balanced, independent content, that costs money. So we do need to make that decision as to how that's going to be funded. Would you be concerned, Imelda Munster, about uh, the consequences? That might be the intention, but there may be unintended consequences. Uh, I mean, if you look at what's happened in recent weeks, uh, whereby RTE have said uh, that uh, they're going to make cutbacks, uh, the way they're doing that, it seems, is even more repeats. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing too. And that they've gotten away with that for years as well, you know, and it, it gnaws at people. And I suppose that's why the um, public service broadcasting in this country anyway is losing um, younger people's, you know, the viewership of younger people that just don't switch in, switch on to it because that's their, their that's what they think of it, you mm. know, that it's, it's outdated and it's, it's, it's not for them. But public broadcasting covers a wide range, you know, and it has to appeal to all. You have to have um, your content production, you have to have language, you have interests for all in society. You know, every aspect of public life, um, that's what public service broadcasting is supposed to represent. And that's what it should represent, you know. And I think, I think actually, my own personal opinion, of course, when I say this, but I think RTE had just become so goddamn arrogant and lazy in their their provision of public broadcasting that that was a huge um, reason why all of this came about as well. You know, that kind of way that they, mm. they were untouchable, they were unquestionable, um, no, they were held accountable, nobody, they were accountable to nobody. And I think it was a combination of all that. So this has been a good you know, I suppose, kicking, if you like, for the want of a better word for them, that's smartened them up. Um, and with this reform now, the licence fee, they know that they'll be held to account. They know that they'll have to answer for themselves. And they know that public broadcasting will be to the core and that people will be questioning them if it's not. OK, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you both indeed for joining us on the programme today. That is Sinn Féin TD for Louth and East Me, the Melda Munster, together with Fianna Fáil Senator Malcolm Byrne. Both are members of uh, the Oireachtas Media Committee. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. As you know, the Shannon was sitting yesterday and uh, there was some anger and upset, I think it has to be said, with Senator Aaron McGreehan asking about farmers in North Cooley who've uh, been 
very challenged to say the least uh, by the recent flooding and wondering what is going to be done for them because farmers elsewhere have received compensation uh, to get through the inclement weather. Uh, she was putting questions uh, to the Minister of State at the Department of Agriculture, Pippa Hackett, uh, who spoke about climate change, uh, climate adaptation process and went on to say that it has not been possible to compensate all of those who were impacted by last year's weather. Um, like no harm, but that's absolutely baloney. And you go back to, I don't need the preaching of the fairy tale from the Department of Agriculture. These farmers are very well equipped and very well aware of the responsibilities to environmental mitigation. But it is absolutely the Department's responsibility to mitigate against farmers going out of business. It's absolutely the Department's responsibility to look after the farming communities and their, their, their entire, their remit, their strategic aims in the Department of Agriculture's website is to support farming families. Like, what is this about? Like, tell me that farmers can look at mitigating measures. Absolute, a cart of bull. I am not taking it, Minister. And there is precedence for, for, for schemes. Inishon was good enough for Charlie back then in 2017. Inishon received f- funding for the, pretty much the exact same thing that has happened. Their fences destroyed, their fodder destroyed, fertiliser, and their fields absolutely ruined. So um, don't tell me there's no precedence for it. Some of that 9, 9.3 million could go, go, I'd say the 0.3, the 0.3 of the million would go a long, long way of fixing a few farmers in North Loud. I, I think the, the Department of Agriculture is in fairy tale land. Thank you very much. And Tara? Absolutely. Um, Senator, I think you just, um, I think for one, I think it is not... Minister, please. Thank you. Um, I I think for one, it's unfair to say that my department does not support farmers. That is what it does. It does that largely with taxpayers' money. And we have to make calls on what is uh, appropriate to spend money on and what isn't. I don't think it's sustainable, and I don't even believe you would believe it's sustainable for the department or any other department to pay out <coughs> one-off measures in response to some... So Shannon it's, Gallows. It's, sorry, it's, it's not Initial. sustainable. Sorry, sorry, I'm sorry, I just can't the, get the minister, the minister of interruption, it's please. It's not thank sustainable. You. Senator Pippa Hackett and a furious Senator Erin McGreen. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now it's a big day in American politics. So if you want to save America, then this Tuesday, January 23rd, you must vote for a man named Trump. Did you ever hear of him? (laughs) And as I said earlier, the details, and and just take it down just in case you want some, but we can't take, we have to get everybody. NH.DonaldJTrump.com. That's Donald Trump, if you need to be told. Let's speak to Larry Donnelly, law lecturer at the University of Galway and political columnist with the journal.ie. Good morning to you, Larry, and thank you indeed for joining us. Donald Trump, they're calling for votes in his favour, obviously, in the New Hampshire primary today, and he is destined to take many of those votes, it would seem, wouldn't it? It looks that way, Michael. I mean, the, the polling data shows that he is uh, around 15 percentage points ahead uh, of Nikki Haley uh, in New Hampshire. Uh, the only thing that Nikki Haley can, I suppose, pray for if she's looking for a miracle is that enough independents uh, will take ballots and vote uh, in the Republican primary, that that might be something the polls can't adequately measure. Uh, that's her only hope, but I would regard that uh, as a very, very faint hope. Uh, my own view is that Donald Trump will win this, uh, by at least five to 
possibly 10 or more percentage points. And in the event that he does win it convincingly, um, the rationale for uh, Nikki Haley to continue uh, becomes harder and harder to grasp. Okay, and Ron DeSantis, uh, after backing out, will be backing Trump. Um, what uh, does this mean, do you think? Is this uh, the, or will it result in Donald Trump being the Republican candidate? It very much looks that way, uh, and, you know. And what needs to be said at this juncture, you know, whatever anyone feels about Donald Trump, uh, the loyalty and the intensity of feeling that he inspires among grassroots conservatives—not just his faithful, which are about a third of the party—but it goes beyond that. Uh, that loyalty and that intensity of feeling uh, is extraordinary. That these people are so ardently in his corner notwithstanding all they know about the man, notwithstanding mm. all the legal trouble that is still swirling, uh, it is truly extraordinary. He just talks and people believe him. Uh, I, I was watching him at one of his rallies uh, a couple of nights ago talking about fishermen. Uh, he said he doesn't understand anything about fisher, f- fishing, but he, he's going to sort out all their problems. Yeah, and, and this is the thing. If you watch, and I, I've been watching a lot of it, both his stump uh, speeches in Iowa and over the past 48 hours in New Hampshire, Michael, he just rants and rambles, and it, it, all I can call it is uh, verbal diarrhea. And he lies, and he lies, and he lies, and he lies some more. And the reality is an awful lot of people in that crowd know he's lying, yet they cheer like hell anyway. It really is unbelievable to watch. Mm. Uh, and he makes some big promises uh, as well. He says if he's the candidate before he's elected, because he's saying that he will be elected to the White House, but before he's uh, elected, he'll sort out the conflict between Russia and Ukraine because he knows Putin and Zelensky personally. Yeah, the list goes on and yeah. on. I mean, mm. from the macro level like like that, where he says he'll end that within 24 hours, to uh, his statement that uh, what's happening in Gaza never would have happened had he been president, all the way to the micro level where he's telling people uh, in New Hampshire that he will cut their energy prices in half uh, within a few short months of his taking uh, office. Uh, It really is an extraordinary litany uh, of promises that he's making that God knows he certainly cannot keep. Mm. Uh, But uh, it doesn't seem to matter, uh, and uh, his behaviour is of no significance, it would seem, to those who support him, because he's in a lot of trouble going into this election. Yeah, I mean, look, he he has uh, a number of outstanding uh, trials. He's going to be a defendant in four uh, separate proceedings at at both the federal and the state level. the, the issue there is very much going to be one of time frame. Uh, you know, we had all these trial dates named by different judges uh, last year. Uh, we're still awaiting a trial date in Georgia, and there's a lot of complications in Georgia that actually helped Donald Trump. But looking at all of those different uh, trials, um, the reality is Donald Trump can push these things out uh, ad infinitum. If you look at his strategy as somebody who's been a serial litigant, in the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Over the years, it has been to delay, to obfuscate, uh, to exhaust every appellate remedy uh, before getting to a trial on the merits. He'll continue to push these things off. And yes, if he does get a conviction, I think that could have a very significant impact on his support in you know republican democrat across the board but will we get a conviction uh, at any stage before uh, the general election in november uh, i'm not sure mm. he, he says he'll bring peace uh, uh, in uh, the russian ukraine uh, conflict the uh, russian invasion of ukraine uh, he also said he's the only candidate who can stop world war three talking about the doomsday clock and all of that sort of stuff but i i think that there's a lot of people who may be concerned that he could very well be the man who would start such a conflict yeah i mean i think there is some there is some of that but one of the things donald trump is going to say and in fairness to him he is very much in tune with the thinking of the american people not just uh, of you know his accolades but more broadly. And the reality is this, that, that, that isolationism is the, the, the dominant thought or dominant school of thought among the American people. Uh, they're poisoned after decades of failed wars in the Middle East. Donald Trump can correctly say that he kept the United States out of armed conflict uh, when he was president. He is very firmly on the isolationist camp. Uh, and I think that that is going to be to the fore uh, in his messaging in the run-up to, to, to November. And I should say, politically speaking, that's a winner for him. All right. Uh, it's almost certain he'll be the candidate. Uh, and I think if he's the candidate, uh, it's uh, pretty much definite, is it not, that he will be the next president if uh, Joe Biden is uh, the Democrat can- Democratic candidate. Uh, I wouldn't say definite. I mean, we're still a long way out in yes. Uh, Joe Biden is is a weak candidate. Yes, Americans have a lot of concerns about his capacity, but he's got a pretty powerful counterargument, which is this. Uh, for people in the middle, uh, the idea of Donald Trump getting four more years in the White House 
unfettered from any political constraints whatsoever, having announced lots of things he's going to do uh, in the White House. Uh, I think for the people who decide these things, people in the middle, that's a pretty powerful argument that the incumbent can make against Donald Trump. Okay, we leave it there, Larry. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us. A uh, big day today, obviously, uh, with uh, this uh, primary underway, and uh, I think uh, the result already known, but people will be watching it very, very closely, not just in New Hampshire, but around the world. That's Larry Donnelly, law lecturer at the University of Galway and a political columnist with uh, the journal .ie. Our phone number today is 0419832000. You can text or WhatsApp us on 0861800 email michael at lmfm.ie if you'd like to make comment on the programme. Some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning, Mary in touch about the TV licence or how to fund public service broadcasting and we heard uh, Senator Malcolm Byrne suggesting, as did Imelda Munster, that it would be funded by the Exchequer uh, and Mary saying, is the government asking us to pay twice? That would be crazy. It's beyond me, says Michael. I, I don't think that is uh, the case. I think that the saying you wouldn't need to buy a TV licence, Mary. That would just be a thing of the past. In fact, you wouldn't have to do anything. Uh, that the government would raise extra taxes so that they could give the equivalent of the TV licence uh, and perhaps more or less, as the case may be, to RTE and then give some uh, funding to Virgin Media or LMFM or any other uh, public service broadcasters. Mag Y in touch with us uh, too, saying uh, the uh, Hamas must be eliminated. Uh, uh, we'd Mary in touch uh, talking about the television licence, saying exchequer funding would be my preference, but uh, we need a body to keep on, an eye on how that is spent and she says RTE Investigates is a, a brilliant programme and prime time and last night's Coco's Law were great uh, they do have some well worthwhile programmes thanks uh, for that uh, Mary. Uh, another text from Sean in Dublin 9 saying the US has already bombed most countries in the Middle East and they're now bombing Yemen I've lost count of how many countries the US have bombed throughout the world creating misery and poverty and most ending in civil wars. Biden may say he's proud of his Irish heritage. So what? We're all proud of being Irish. But so is every village idiot we have. And my heavens, they are still with us. Thank you, Sean, in Dublin 9, for your text to the programme today. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk about uh, politics in Northern Ireland. If politics exists uh, in Northern Ireland, uh, we're joined uh, by Sinn Féin MLA Michelle Gildernew. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. The time is time for an election because the legal deadline passed on Friday. Chris Heaton Evans legally obliged to call an election, hasn't done so yet. Would you like to see the Northern Minister call an election now? Absolutely. Um, we've had months, almost two years of talking and processes and all the rest of it. Now it's the time for Geoffrey Donaldson to actually take action. We had um, 170,000 people picketing on the streets in the cold and wet last week. Public sector workers, teachers, nurses, doctors, um, Department of Infrastructure staff, right across the board, our public sector workers have not received the pay rise that their colleagues mm. in England, Scotland and Wales got last year. The money is there. The money's there. Yeah. And Chris Heaton-Harris is making it um, dependent on going back into institutions. He can't 
put people's lives. You can't you can't blackmail people. Mm. But at the same time, Michelle O'Neill in her um, exchange in the assembly last week when we recalled the assembly to talk about the deadline that was coming up put it out very clearly. There is no reason, no rationale for the DUP not to go into an executive other than the fact that they don't want a Sinn Féin First Minister. Mm. And Would you be willing to change the title? Well, first of all, the election was run on the basis of, of what? The, the, uh, the first and deputy the, first. Yes, the process uh, that they, we've got. And they have equal status. They have equal status. And we've served as Deputy First Minister yep. Michelle O'Neill herself, Martin McGuinness before that. I served in the executive under Martin McGuinness and Ian Paisley as an agriculture minister and saw at first hand, I mean, we worked very hard to make that executive work, to make it work for ordinary people, for workers, for families. And right now, workers and families are suffering right across the north. But workers and families are suffering in this region too. Mm. And um, workers and families are suffering because of the DUP's inaction and they need to they need to actually do. No point mm. in talking. Now's the time to do. And that's what they have to do. But their support is growing, isn't it, in the opinion polls? Um, well, the real opinion poll is an election. Mm, yeah. And Chris Heaton Harris, there should be an election. We're two years from the last one. Um I'm not sure fundamentally that the result would be any different. I think Sinn Fein would still be in front. But of mm. course we don't take any election for granted or the electorate. But people know that they're getting strong positive leadership mm. from Michelle O'Neill and Mary Lou MacDonald. They're getting um, compassion and empathy from people who actually understand the issues that are, people are going through. The cost of living mm. crisis is hitting hard. People's resilience yeah. is very, very low. And families are really struggling to get by. And at the same time, they're seeing DUP MLAs refusing. Mm. And what does it say about democracy? Yeah. We've, we ran an election. We had the result. Two years later. Two years yeah. later. Mm. We still don't have... What does it say about Sinn Féin, though? Why, why is Sinn Féin standing back and letting the DUP hold not just the political institutions, but the people of Northern Ireland to ransom, really, by being so intransigent and not taking up their seats? If an election was to be held tomorrow, all that would do would be uh, spend a, a lot of money. It would make no difference. Sinn Féin undoubtedly would return as the biggest party. Uh, Michelle O'Neill should be the First Minister, but the DUP would block it. Uh, surely something has to change in terms of how the Good Friday Agreement is structured so that politics can be a reality for the people who go out and vote in those yeah, elections. Absolutely, but it's not in Sinn Féin's gift. And the people who have the power are mm. the two governments. The but British I don't hear government, Sinn Féin calling for those changes. Well, we, we have been calling for them and Sinn Féin have been calling on the British government to take decisive action mm. but also calling on the Irish government as co-guarantors yeah. of the Good Friday Agreement to do more. Okay. Now, we know that um, if the election isn't called and if we move into some other kind of structure there will be an increased role for the Irish government. Mm. And I welcome that. Okay. Um, but but, but ultimately, what, what ultimately, else? we'd want to see the, the DUP around the executive but table. But what, what, what has Sinn Féin been calling for? Sinn Féin have been calling for the DUP to get back to work. Yeah, but and they've said no. So, 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 so well, what are they you saying? To, they've said... What are you saying to the British government? They, they've said... They, ha they've said, they haven't said no. It's they're, they're, it's... It's like they're um, they're saying, oh, there's a process and we're talking to the British yeah. government mm. and we need to fix the protocol or, you know, the protocols mm. are as a result of Brexit. Mm. The Windsor framework is as a result of, of all of that. So let's get back to the crux of it. The DUP called for a hard Brexit. Mm. Brexit affected every single person on this island. It affects people in Meath and Louth almost as much as it affects people in Fermanagh and Tyrone. Mm. So the people of this area are also similarly affected 
negatively affected Would by Would you like Brexit. an amendment to the Good Friday Agreement? Well, again, we, we need to go back to um, the Good Friday Agreement in all of its parts, as Martina Anderson had, had got a guarantee in Europe. The Good Friday Agreement in all of its parts needs to be needs to be protected. It needs to work in the mm. first instance. And while the DUP... But it can't DUP, work under the DeHaunt system if one party, whether it's Sinn Féin, which was the case in the past, or the DUP currently says, we're not taking up our seats. Well, Sinn Féin stood Arlene Foster as First Minister down because there, were, there was a serious mm. misuse of public money serious misuse of public money mm. and the um the public accounts committee and the controller and auditor general had had very strong words about about that and when you see a party in government using their power to put money into people's pockets for the wrong reasons that's not good and we need accountability mm. so that was the reason that the, the executive came down at that stage then we worked very hard to try and put it back up and the DUP refused. But the DUP also, mm. before this last election... But do you want, the t- the, the do, t- the do you want political parties not to have the ability to do that? We That's want question, political so. parties to do what they're elected to do. And yeah. the DUP have disengaged... There are three strands to the Good Friday Agreement. Strand one is obviously the Assembly. But strand two, they disengaged with strand two long before the election. They'd withdrawn from the North-South Ministerial Council. I've worked as an agriculture minister, worked on those bodies, worked with my counterparts here in this constituency to try and get a better deal for farmers, a better infrastructure for farm families, mm. sustainability in rural communities, um, protecting the animal health on this island. Um, if we have a disease in in the six counties, I'm telling you now, it's affecting people in, in Meath and Louth and Cavan and Monaghan as well. Yeah, so, and Kerry and Donegal mm-hmm. and them all. But um, no, we, we have got, we've tried very hard to make politics work in the North. If the DUP continue to insist on being part of a process, yep. then then that that okay. that day is co- is gone. Okay. They need to now do, and if they won't do, and if they say yep. they won't do, then the Irish and British yep. governments have to step put, up. Put a, put a time frame on, on the next step oh, because God. the next step is. Uh, that you sort of called a, a day with this ongoing negotiation yeah. with uh, the DUP and you're suggesting that the Irish government gets involved uh, alongside the British government and uh, that uh, there would be uh, co-governance. Uh, how long would that last for? When would that happen? How long would it last for? And at what stage then do you move to an all-Ireland poll? Well, at the back of all of that then, I think that's unsustainable anyway for the long term. Um, we need strong voices representing and and standing up for Ireland. And, you know, I've worked very closely with TDs and the MEP for this area. Um, Very closely, um, Joe Riley, God rest him, was a good friend of mine. And um, I've worked closely with Rory and Imelda and and the team down here and um, Darren, obviously, as well. So, look, we're an all-Ireland party. We are working in every form on the island, but we're also working internationally and we have um, support around the world. But the EU has been a major player in all of that. And we need, we have European elections coming up in June. We need to be sure that we're sending a strong team because the EU are critical in helping to bring about Irish unity. Mm. It can happen, but it won't happen if we don't work towards it. And I suppose I'm disappointed that the, the parties of government haven't done more to plan for it. So we need to see a transformation there. We need to see actual planning, bringing people together. Mm. We need to see proper dialogue, conversation. Um, we need communities to be consulted. We need mm. a health system 
that works for everybody. Our health service is crumbling at falling apart at the seams in the north. In the, but, in the north. But yeah. it's mm-hmm. it's do you know what it could be better here too. Yeah. Our education mm-hmm. system is on its knees. We were able to do things mm-hmm. years ago that we can only dream about now. And you know, we need this island will only be punching above its weight when we're when we're dealing on an all Ireland basis and yeah. we're making decisions for every single person in, in Ireland. If political unionism is turning its back on that process, then thankfully civic unionism mm. are working with us and there's amazing people who are coming together with us to talk about what that new Ireland will look like. Okay. But it's not up to us mm. well, on our own to deliver. It, we need the the, 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 gov- the parties of government to work on that too. Okay. We need to see citizens' assembly, we, assemblies. We need fora for debate, discussion. To start that discussion. Yeah. And it's, you know what? If Brexit taught us anything, yeah. how not to do a referendum? It, like. Well, that's absolutely true. <laughs> I don't think there's anybody listening who would argue with that. It's not too long ago that a, a, a man from Belfast drove down the road uh, and stood in Irish elections and ended up uh, representing this constituency of uh, County Louth. Uh, is it true that Michelle Michelle Gildernew uh, may follow in the footsteps of Gerry Adams? Well, we're an all-Ireland party. We see the island in its entirety. And I thought Gerry Adams did an absolutely amazing job when he drove down the road. And yes, I am putting my name forward um, for the nomination um, if I get it, um, nominations close on the 29th of January and I'm hoping to get a nomination to run alongside Chris McManus um, as for the European yeah. elections. Chris Chris has had a difficult job as a, a single MEP and it's a massive constituency. So I'm hoping that I can come in here and be a strong voice in Europe yeah. along with Chris and along with other MEPs. You wouldn't see to it as a foreign constituency. Oh my it? God, not no, at no, all. No. <laughs> Uh, no, this is home. This is home. Cavan Monaghan is my hinterland and um, we've been further down here in Louth than Meath, but definitely um, I, I remember canvassing in in Meath years ago and Joe Riley took me to the carpet factory for the second time and I'm going, Joe, you know, we're, we're going to need to go a wee bit further out. But um, no, this is not an area that's, that's strange to me. I, I know my way around. And do you know what? The issues that affect rural communities here in Midlands Northwest affect constituencies across the north of the country and the whole of the country. Mm. And farming is such an integrated sector. People who are going to marts, they're they're shopping in the same in the same you know, they're fishing in the same pond. They're going and buying drop calves in marts and whether they're going north or south, mm. it's still a very integrated um economy. But there's there's there was yeah. difficulties mm. in in dealing with that when we were both in the EU, but in different administrations. You can imagine how much more difficult that is now. Yeah, but I, I think, you know, whilst uh, Europe might be the hand that feeds farmers in the Republic, uh, farmers in the Republic, like farmers in the North, like farmers in Germany, have very significant problems with European regulations. They do. And at the minute, I think it's very regrettable that farmers are being asked to do more for less. And, you know, the farmers can't fix the, 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 all the problems of the world. They can't fix climate control on their own. They certainly will be a very positive contributor to that. But we need to ensure one thing we have that is fairly unique in Europe is the Irish family farm. And that has to be protected at all costs. That's the very fabric of rural Irish society. And that's what we need to be. We need to be a strong voice for those family farmers who are providing essential services, who are populating 
rural communities who are, you know, populating our schools, who are making our villages and, and townlands thrive. And we need to make sure that that system of agriculture is protected and looked after. We need farmers to be paid a fair price for their labour. That doesn't always happen. And we need, um, we need to ensure that big you know, global companies like Mercosur and others don't come in here and squeeze the life clean out of our farmers because that product that we have, Irish beef, sheep, pork, dairy, hugely important and important on the global market. Um, so, I mean, we export milk to over 100 countries around the world. We are an, a major exporter of food but we're an importer of grain and, mm. and other so we're not uh, we can't be standalone we have to look at the supply chain we have to make it more um, easier for, for farmers to negotiate and we need to make farming profitable and okay. I keep farming farm, farming is a is often a lonely often a dangerous occupation mm-hmm. so we need to ensure that farm safety is, is protected that we're not exhausting farmers and make them cut corners and take risks with their their lives but we also need to protect their mental health and okay. rural communities are the absolute backbone of this country and do you know what um if i get the nomination and if i'm on the on the doorsteps between now and june i'm looking forward to getting out and talking to people but one of my favorite events of the year highlight um, is the plan match and mm. I can't wait to see Anna Mae and Anne-Marie McHugh again because I just think there's such a joy in that event okay. and uh, and I'm really looking forward to you that this year. have your wellies bought already by the I have my wellies long bought Michael that's <laughs> okay. not a problem. And I think people listening to us uh, this morning uh, won't be too surprised if they're reading between the lines uh, if uh, they hear you campaigning in the upcoming European elections. Thanks for coming into us this morning. Bill. Thanks a million nice Michael it's been my pleasure. Indeed. That's uh, Sinn Féin MLA Michelle Gilderoo. Michael Reed on LMFM. There was a bit of history yesterday in Leinster House uh, with uh, the last speech made to Shannon Aaron uh, by the grandfather of uh, the house, David Norris. I stand here today to announce that after 36 years, I will be resigning from Shannon Aaron. Following the order of business, I will formally submit my letter of resignation to Uncahillic Jerry Bottomer. However, before I do so, I would like to take this opportunity to thank a number of people who have helped me along the way. And firstly, I want to mention my great friend, the incomparable Miriam Gordon Smith. That applause is richly deserved. Um, I'd also like to mention my election agent and friend over 36 years, Mr. Brian Murray. Brian has stuck with me from my early first attempts to my final campaign of 2020 and has been a source of good and honest advice. I will miss our senatorial collaborations. Secondly, I would like to thank the very many graduates who have supported me and given me their number one vote consistently over many years. I've tried to represent them to the best of my ability. And I'd also like to mention all those people who in the old days mounted a kind of... progress line of uh, people stuffing and folding and putting envelopes and all this kind of stuff. They were an essential element in the early days. 
Um, lastly, I'd like to vote, voice my appreciation for the many senatorial colleagues, past and present, who it has been a pleasure to collaborate with. Some names in particular jumped to mind, such as Joe O'Toole, Brendan Ryan, Fergal Quinn, Joe Lee, John Crown, and Sean Barrett, and of course, my current colleagues and friends across all parties and none. Since this is my last opportunity to speak on the floor of this House, I'd like to continue to advocate for peace in Palestine, and in particular Gaza. What is happening to the inhabitants of Gaza is appalling and cannot be allowed to continue. Man's inhumanity to man is our greatest shame, and I have to say also that it goes completely against the Jewish ethic, which is l'chaim, to life. And this present government under Netanyahu has committed them, instead of to life, to death. To death in overwhelming numbers for the unfortunate, trapped citizens of Gaza. I deplore it completely. Um, what is happening is appalling and cannot be allowed to continue. Man's inhumanity to man is our greatest shame. I urge you to continue to push for peace in our times. Finally, I would like to voice my support for the forthcoming referenda on the family. It is important that they succeed, and even though I will be retired, I will be, to the best of my ability, campaigning for their success. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, I'm sure it's not the last that we'll hear of independent Senator David Norris, uh, but that uh, his last speech in Shannon Aaron, which uh, he gave yesterday, and using the time uh, to voice his uh, appalling uh, uh, feeling uh, over what is happening in the Gaza Strip uh, and appealing to politicians to continue to fight against what he called man's inhumanity to man. Now to some more of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning, we'd uh, Jerry and Wilkinson uh, who has been in touch and uh, he says uh, the only solution in uh, the North is to bring back uh, devolution it's a Northern Ireland problem let the British government sort it out uh, well I think it's the DUP uh, who need to be brought on board Jerry, and uh, the British government uh, is in ongoing talks with the DUP but I'm not sure where they are going um, We'd uh, somebody else in touch saying if I pay a monthly internet fee to my provider does that mean that it will get more expensive to pay for a licence fee I'm not sure that either are going to happen it looks like the licence fee is going to be scrapped at some stage but thank you indeed uh, for your comment if you'd like to make comment on the programme this morning you can text or WhatsApp us on 086-1800-658 Now as you've been hearing Trocra is urgently calling on the government to carry out a detailed assessment of whether there is a risk that genocide is being committed by Israel in its war against Gaza. The CEO of Trokra is Kiva Dabara, who's on the line. And a, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, you're asking uh, the government uh, as well to issue a statement in support of the South African case against Israel and when possible to join in that case. I think the government has said up to this point at least that that is not something that they are going to pursue. Perhaps when an interim uh, 
position is taken by the International Court of Justice, it, it will uh, decide to join the case, but not up to that point. Uh, why do you believe that it, it should be looking at the situation now as things stand? So good morning and thank you for having me on the show. So first of all, what is most important and what underlies everything that we are doing and saying is that the Irish state as a signatory to the Genocide Convention of 1948 is legally bound to do everything in its power to prevent genocide or the risk of genocide. So Ireland must go above and beyond what it is currently doing, which is already quite strong. So Ireland has taken a leadership position in recent months in calling for a ceasefire. But the problem is this is no longer enough. Um, We are asking the government to urgently conduct its own detailed assessment of whether there is a risk that genocide is being committed in Gaza. Um, That is fundamental in order that the government um, have its own assessment that would determine what it can do if it determines there is a risk of genocide. The International Court of Justice has been asked by South Africa to investigate whether there is a risk of genocide happening in, in Gaza right now. And it is asking that because it is the International Court of Justice that would determine, it's the legal entity that would identify whether or not genocide is unfolding. It's a complex legal area. So it is fully correct to say that the normal process, the formal process, is that at this initial stage, states don't join as formal supporters or make formal submissions. That happens when the ICJ rules that there is a case to investigate. Then the Irish government can make a formal submission. However, on the basis that it must do everything in its power to ensure that it is helping to prevent the risk of genocide, what we are saying is that it is important that the Irish government assert the validity of the International Court of Justice's role in looking at whether or not crimes have been committed. So, in other words, we are asking that the Irish government would state that it's valid to ask the International Court of Justice to investigate whether there's a risk of genocide in Gaza. And by supporting that request from South Africa, Ireland would be confirming publicly, and this is important in the current context where the international multilateral rules-based system is under attack, Ireland would be confirming that there's a system in place to address the most serious risks to civilians in conflict situations. And that would underscore that it is the responsibility of those multilateral systems um, to defend international human rights and international humanitarian law. So you cannot have states declaring what is or isn't happening when there are international human rights and humanitarian law-based systems whose role it is to do that. So the International Court of Justice, like the International Criminal Court, have very important roles to play. And we'd like to see the Irish government asserting their importance and asserting the value that the Irish government places on them to a far higher degree. Okay, if uh, the International Court of Justice uh, makes a conclusion that there is a case to investigate and ultimately whether Ireland supports uh, that investigation or not ultimately concludes that Israel has committed genocide uh, of course uh, that may have no bearing on the conflict uh, because they can choose to decide that ruling can't they? With the internet, they can. Um, and for example, in the case of Ukraine versus Russia, 
Russia chose not to uh, not to carry through on the ICJ ruling, which asked it to suspend its military operations. However, what it does is it puts immense pressure on the parties to the conflict. So if they are requested by the highest court in the world, this is the court of last resort. It's the court where one country can say that another country is in violation of the most fundamental of human rights laws. So if that court determines that the, the parties to the conflict need to seize the conflict mm. so that it can investigate the charges. Then if one of the countries doesn't, or if both don't, it reflects very, very badly on them. It, it basically says that they are not willing to be held to account by the international standards that 193 members of the UN um, stand behind. Okay. Kiva, you've seen conflict all over the world uh, uh, working uh, in this field and you've more experience of atrocities, I would imagine, than anybody listening to us uh, this morning. Uh, What are you seeing uh, unfold in uh, the Gaza Strip? I I think it's probably true to say that uh, there's nothing comparable to it. uh, But does it border on genocide or would you go further and say that it, it is genocide given the amount of civilians who are being slaughtered on a daily basis. So so we Trogra cannot determine whether genocide is happening. That is a legal determination. But what we are witnessing is the most devastating humanitarian catastrophe that certainly I have seen in my 25 years as a humanitarian worker and that UN agencies are saying is the worst humanitarian disaster for decades. What has happened is that 25,000 people have been killed, 1.9 million out of 2.2 million displaced. 70% of all houses, of all buildings have either been entirely destroyed or partially destroyed. There's not a school left in Gaza that is not either fully or partially destroyed. One in four people are facing immediate risk of death by starvation. 2.2 million people, the UN says, are at imminent risk of famine. The fact that we have come to such a stage of such mass hunger, absolute devastation in less than four months makes this the worst, the fastest and the deepest humanitarian crisis in living history. Mm. 250 Palestinians per day are dying, which is a Mm. higher death death rate daily than any other 21st century conflict. We have never seen something of this sort. And the rain is coming. I was just going to say the rain is coming and that will be followed by disease Uh, and uh, I think therein lies uh, some of uh, the work, uh, the importance of uh, the work uh, that Trogra does on the ground. That's that's exactly it. So the winter conditions in Gaza are harsh. It's extremely exposed. There has been heavy rain already for the past month and a half. People are living in appalling conditions with no access to sanitation, literally no access to food, apart from a very small amount that the UN is able to deliver. Um, Infectious diseases that are easily preventable and normally easily treatable are rife. The level of malnutrition is sky high. People are suffering in ways that are simply unimaginable, except that we can see it on our screens in front of us. Trokra works with local partner organisations. We are trying and really struggling to bring basic assistance to people. We're working with Medical Aid for Palestinians, which is an excellent organisation, and it's really struggling to keep its staff safe as they try and access people who need medical care and access to medical services and supplies. Um, Most of our partners, they are unable to move because of security threats. They are all affected by this conflict. 
it's a situation that we literally have never seen before. We haven't seen this extent. There is an urgent need for a ceasefire so that humanitarian assistance can be brought in. Not only is the physical devastation just appalling, but imagine the psychological effect on 2.2 million, literally the entire population of the bombardments, of losing family members, extended family members, of knowing that even if the war was to end tomorrow, you know, 60% of the population of Gaza will not have a home to return to. Um, the future is so uncertain and the stress and the impact of that, both physically and mentally, is, is scarcely imaginable. We are doing everything that we can here in Trokra to try and ensure that our local partners have access to what they can to provide humanitarian support. But in a context where ambulances have been targeted, where the UN has been told that four out of five of its convoys cannot travel, they've been refused access to northern Gaza, the area most in need. It's a situation where, you know, the governing authorities, effectively the Israeli authorities, are making it impossible for the humanitarian system to respond. And that, unfortunately, is part of what is defined as war crimes, because under the the uh, the conventions that govern war, civilians must be protected and there cannot be attacks on objects that are indispensable to the survival of civilians. So that means yeah. civilians must be able to access food, fuel, water and medical support. And that's clearly not happening. Kiva, a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Kiva Debarra is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Trocra. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda investigating locally. Perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Fiona Kerr joins us for this week's report from Navangarda Station. And thank you for doing so. We're going to begin with two thefts from vehicles in the Ashburn area. Good morning, Michael. Yeah, so the first incident happened on the 17th of January. That's Wednesday last. And it occurred around 8.45pm. A van was parked at the Snailbox pub in Kilmoon in Ashburn. The van was broken into and some power tools were taken, amounting to a loss of thousands to the owner. Now, the second incident occurred on Thursday, the 18th of January, between 9.20 and 9.40am on the Screen Road in Ratoth. A large number of tools were taken while the owner was working. Again, like the previous incident, there were thousands of euros worth of tools taken. So just to recap for our listeners this morning, if anyone was in the vicinity of the Snailbox pub in Kilmoon, Ashburn, around 8.45pm last Wednesday and saw anything suspicious, a person or persons or even a suspicious vehicle, to please contact Ashburn Gardaí. And again, Ashburn Gardaí are investigating the incident on the screen road in Ratos. And if anyone was on this road last Thursday morning between 9.20 and 9.40 a.m. and noticed anything unusual, please contact Ashburn, Sta- Ashburn Station. OK, and if you're offered uh, cheap tools, uh, maybe ask questions, contact the guardie. And indeed, if you have valuable tools, uh, probably a word of warning in there for you too. We're going to Kells for the next report of a burglary and a stolen car. That's right. In the early hours of Thursday, the 18th of January, at around 3.30 a.m. at Currowood, Carlinstown, Kells, County Mead, a house was broken into. So the lock on the front door had been popped and entry gained. Now, the keys of the car that was parked in the driveway were taken. And unfortunately, there were a number of valuable items in the car that were stolen, namely golf clubs and keys, amounting to a significant loss to the owner. So the Guardian Kells are very keen to progress this investigation and would like the public's help. 
So if anyone was in the area of Curlwood in Carlinstown, County Meads, on Wednesday night into Thursday morning, approximately 3.30am, and saw or noticed anything unusual or any unusual activity, to contact Kells Garda Station with this information. Now, the car that was stolen was a white BMW 3 Series 161D in registration. That's a white BMW 3 Series 161D registration. Okay, you want to speak to listeners this morning uh, as well about the control of dogs. Yes, as lambing season approaches, Gardaí would uh, once again like to remind dog owners that your pets must be kept under control at all times. So please do not allow your dogs to roam and keep them away from lambing ewes as they are very easily distressed. We would ask dog owners to be responsible and if your dog attacks an animal on someone's land, you could be held liable for the damages and face prosecution. And the farmer is also within their rights to shoot any animal that is worrying their livestock. And for more information on this, you can check out the Mead Crime Prevention Facebook page. Okay, and to conclude, uh, some tips for people uh, on preventing crime in their homes. Yes, Gardaí would urge you to be vigilant when leaving your home vacant, even for a few minutes while you pop out, as that's all it takes for a burglar to break into your home. So we would advise that before leaving the house, ensure all doors and windows are secured and the alarm is set. And you should even consider using your alarm when in the home. So light up your house, use timer switches when away, store keys safely away from windows and letterboxes to avoid them being fished out. Do not store large amounts of cash in your home and jewellery of high value should be stored in a safe. So please report all suspicious activity to Gardaí immediately and be vigilant and always be on the lookout for vulnerable and elderly neighbours. OK, thank you indeed. Garda Fiona Kerr of Navin Garda Station. We return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Thanks too to Margaret texting the programme saying every time I hear talk about climate change and what we have to do, I always wonder why nobody ever mentions the harm that the wars in the world are doing to the climate and no mention either of all of the rockets or satellites that were blasted up through the atmosphere and are floating around in space. They are doing harm to the climate but nobody talks about it. Big companies with big bucks send them up. Uh, come Nobody is telling them to stop destroying the atmosphere. Is it because it's easier to go after us mere mortals down here and blame us for climate change? They want us to stop using coal, turf, oil, gas, dry VVs and so on. Why all of that junk is floating up there? The climate will continue to deteriorate. I think it's time that these companies were told to stop, but who will be brave enough to do that? Oh, and still no mention of the unfortunate childminders in the Congo from any of our elected reps. Margaret says it's shameful. Thanks for telling us, Margaret. Maggie McGuire researched today. Chris Murray was in the control term. I'm Michael and God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.